Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fourth Wall, the podcast. My name is Elena Newell. And my name is Abigail Brazier. This is actually the first time we're talking directly to our listeners, just us. This is like the first thing they're going to hear. That's crazy. So before we get into Tyler's interview, we wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that we actually have been working on the edits for his his interview already. And as we were listening individually and writing down notes for feedback, I noticed that there is a portion of the conversation that you will hear that talks about racism outside the context of theater. Mm-hmm. And I brought this to Elena and I said, you know... I love that we're having this conversation, but I'd love to get to the meat and the potatoes. Like, is there any way we can cut and jump to talking about the topic in the context of theater, how it exists in our industry and our corner of the world? And Elena, how did you respond? Well, first of all, I love me and Gail's work-wife relationship because we bring things to each other in a very... I never feel like I'm unsafe when it comes to speaking my opinion. And I wasn't afraid to bring up the fact that in the context of our show, our show is about theater, obviously. It's about bias in theater. But there's no way for you to understand what a black artist feels in the context of theater if you don't understand how they feel in the context of life because everything that they go through in their daily life impacts how they perform it impacts how they market themselves as an artist and I think that truly for me anyway when I'm talking to these artists is the meat and potatoes for me like actually getting let understanding how their brain works how how their own biases that they've had instilled into them affects how they move through the world because that in turn will affect how they move through the industry especially someone like Tyler who is extremely positive and always speaks love and light and you never really hear him talk about the challenges that he faces even though as a black gay man you know that he faces several it was really refreshing to hear him talk about something not theater related and just talk about him acknowledging himself as a black man. I think that also informs why he's so positive and why he pushes so much light into his social media. Absolutely. And when I brought that concern of mine to Elena, like, can we cut to the chase because our podcast is about bias in theater? I, as a white person, hadn't, I hadn't thought about the fact that bringing to, in order to inform the context of bias in theater, we had to learn first about its context and existence outside of theater, you know? So that was a really eye-opening and a learning moment for me. And that's a big, a big mission of this show that you are listening to and this journey that you're joining us on is learning in real time and realizing that there are biases and it's a privilege for me that I didn't realize that that context outside of theater was so important you know, it's about checking yourself and learning. And I was able to say, okay, thank you, Elena. I had not even thought about that, which is the point, you know? So we're going to get into it with Tyler. I think it's also about us learning, you know? We're not these know-all beings that are going to tell you how to fix racism and how to fix fat shaming and how to fix homophobia in the industry. We are actively learning at the same time you, the same times that you are. Like, We do not claim to know everything. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. We are not experts. At all. We're not experts. But we are here to to host the forum. You know, we're the hosts of this. We're leading the... 
Well, maybe not leading the conversation, but we're definitely... We're helping to start it. Yes, we're starting the conversation and we're here as representatives who can speak openly with each other about these things and get to the bottom of it because that's the whole point, isn't it? We're simply here to help you piece those stories together so that you can listen and you can learn just like we are. Oh, yeah. So shall we get into it? Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Enjoy our interview with Tyler McKenzie here on Fourth Wall, the podcast. Well, well, well. Elena, here we are. Ah! And who is who else is with us right now? Well, today we have the illustrious Tyler McKenzie. Hello, illustrious. I love I don't think I've ever been called that name before. Like that that adjective. That's fierce. I need to write that down. I've been watching a lot of pose and I love all of their adjective use. It's always on 10 and it's always <gasps> wonderful. Oh, so good. Funny story, like yesterday I saw, I think they just released their second season on Netflix. And I've seen the second season because I watched it like on the network TV, Um, obviously streaming, who watches real TV anymore. But I thought that there was a brand new season. I thought it was season three. So I like jumped out of my seat. I was super excited. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's just the second season that's been uploaded to um, Netflix. And I got so disappointed. Anyway, are you finished with the entire second season? Yes, I am. Oh my goodness. I remember I binged the first season when it like right after it got released and that was right when season two was happening and I was like, oh great, I'm done with season one. I can just move right on to season two. It is so amazing and so just well done. It was just a well put together piece. I loved every second of it, truly. It's, it's so what's needed right now too. What's funny is that it didn't like come out in this like movement time, but it was so needed when it came out. And now it's like even more relevant right now. So it's like, thank God to have Netflix actually put together this huge channel of like um, content for like black voices and stuff like that and poses on there. And I was like, ah, what a, what a, this content exists, which is so beautiful. And now it just needs to be like heard and seen. So uh, I could go on and on, but hi, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, Tyler, for the people who don't know who you are, can you just give them a rundown of all that you are, all that you've done? I know that's almost impossible to ask of you, but just try to, for the people, give them a quick little, quick little index card worth of info. Yeah. Um, let's see. I am, I was last seen, I always love that. I was last seen um, in Hamilton, the, the Philip Company, um, after a little bit of time on the Broadway show um, in the Broadway Company. Um, before that, I've done shows like Matilda on the Road. I did Mamma Mia maybe six times um, altogether, um, including the Broadway show, the national tour, international sit down, as well as some directorial um, uh, uh, productions with Mamma Mia. So I am very well, well skilled with Mamma Mia and ABBA music. Um, But yeah, other than that, um, other than directing and, um, and performing, I am also the founder and creator of Tyler McKenzie Creative Studio. So I run online classes, which is super fun right now during this time. And that's what's been taking my time teaching online, creating my own classes and curriculum on my studio, as well as producing this incredible podcast. So I'm very excited about it. Um, So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) 
Tyler here is a Western Carolina University alumni from yes, and, and Western Carolina University is in Cullowee, North Carolina. So Tyler, did you grow up in North Carolina? I did not. I grew up, I was born in Long Island, New York. Um, and I spent, let's see, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina when I was 13, I think, around that time. And I ended up going to a magnet art school in Charlotte. And then I auditioned, like everyone, auditioned to like 20,000 schools. And I Western was one of the places that I actually went to the campus because it was so close. And I felt so at home. The mountains, just Asheville being 45 minutes away. It was just so brilliant and it was so personal um when I got there and I loved the faculty I loved the students and I ended up going there I actually it was in between I was sitting down at my um table it was in between Point Park University and Western Carolina University and I decided to go Western and it was the best decision I've ever made so far oh heck yeah do you feel that there was a notable difference between Long Island and and the environment up here versus moving to North Carolina where do you think you were treated any differently because of your color or did you face any adversities you know as you went from this this area up here is so I also grew up in the south and then I moved up to the tri-state area so I'm just wondering if your experience like what was your experience like living in two different places like that. From my perspective, having done three national tours and visited some of the, some rural areas, um, there is a sense of, although there is a sense of celebrity because you're coming into their town, you're, you're, there's flyers and signs everywhere and people are excited about this sold out show most of the time. I went to many rural areas when I was doing Mamma Mia because it was, we were traveling all the time because of the kind of tour it was. Um, and still, I think there's never a time in those rural areas that I wasn't walking on the street and some in the back of my head thinking, am I making this person uncomfortable? Does this thing, am I too close? this person to me, like thinking that they might think I'm up to no good. Like it's a huge internal monologue that I go through very a lot. Um, and then it makes me, I think it's also, um, it's also affected how I act in general. I, 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 and how hard I work to make sure I'm living in a great area and living, living in a beautiful apartment. And I want to make sure that this is really weird. This is, I've never said this out loud, like making, seeing who sees me walking out of this brownstone that I live in in New York, because they don't see that very often because they don't see, I, I want to be the change. And it doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't, and that's not the way it should be. I shouldn't think that I have to um, buy expect, expensive things, speak eloquently and be well-spoken for, for me to, for white people to um, take us more seriously. And that's, I think that's the intention behind how hard I work is to one, be inspiration to other black kids to know that they can get to where they wanna go. And for white people, certain white people to know that we are just the same and I can make the same amount of money than you, uh, as you, if not more. And like, it's a, obviously I'm going on a tangent, but there's a lot, it's a lot to unpack. Right. So I'm really excited for you to, to be like, 
like bit by bit to be discussing these like really cool and deep um, conversations and topics, hoping that some the right person will hear it. If not, educate people little by little so that they can educate others. It's totally a networking game and it's totally a word of mouth game. Um, and I'm seeing it everywhere and it's super exciting. Do you also feel like it's a self-preservation type tactic? Because I find that I'm someone who grew up in a middle-class family in a fairly suburban white town. And thinking back on it, every move I made was in an act of protecting myself somehow. I was always conscious of how I looked and how I was presented. If I went to a mall that was a little bit more high-end, I had to make sure I wasn't wearing sweatpants. I wasn't wearing jeans because I don't want anyone to think I'm going to steal something or I'm going to make trouble. If I'm going to a formal event, I had to make sure my hair was presented a certain way. It had to be straight or it had to be up. And it's always running in my brain. It never cuts off. You're constantly aware of how you are presented to everyone. You're constantly aware of what you're presenting to people. And Uh you don't want anyone to have those ideas of you because realistically, although they're stereotypes and caricatures, they could also, for us, be life or death situations, life or death definitions that could really justify whether or not you're viewed as a threat or someone that they could trust. And I don't know if I'll ever feel safe, but I know that I have to always do those things to feel like I'm giving myself my best chance to make it to the next day, you know? Yeah. Which is kind of dark, but... Unfortunately, it's real, you know? It's so real. It's so real. And hopefully this movement relaxes a lot of the people of color to know that they can they can bring their authentic selves and feel safe being that without thinking that they're going to um, invoke fear out of people who don't necessarily get it or don't have that point of view um there's a there's a quote and i'm gonna butcher it but um there's a quote about black women and it's it's like the black women that you hear that are too loud are loud because they've been silenced for so long and i'm like oh my god and there's a lot of that rhetorics everywhere and and i wish i had it all on a list right now to share with you guys but that type of thing is like it's so true it's so true it's it's a it's an effect on past wrongs and missed opportunities and i'm hoping that now is coming to the forefront it's coming it's becoming public facing and solutions are being made Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Elena and I have been talking and, and, you know, in planning the podcast and implementing all these things and having these discussions every single day. As a white person, I have the absolute privilege to turn it off. It's emotionally overwhelming and and it can be so draining. And I have the entire privilege of being able to step away from it for a minute and collect myself before I come back to that thinking and reflecting on all of these things and I'm realizing if it is a white it's not the white person's responsibility Mm -hmm. to understand how it feels or what it means to be black but what it means to be white and and 
and the voice that we have. I am able to shut off and like stop looking at Black Lives Matter and you know like watch a different movie or something. Like you guys aren't able to do that. It lights me on fire and makes me want to work together to move on and make the world a better place. Tyler, when it comes to all of this darkness and dealing with all of this stress, what are ways that you implement self-care into your daily routine to kind of help manage all of it, you know? My self-care routine, I do yoga almost every day. At this point in time, the routine is I usually do, I do my 12, I do my 10 o'clock class through core power yoga at 10 o'clock every single day in the weekday and I take a break just to give my muscles a rest. Showing up for myself, just that act of showing up for myself is giving me the tools to be able to create mindful and intentional headspace to be able to shine light and give yourself to other people. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? It's it's said all the time, every week on RuPaul's Drag Race, but it is so true. You know what I mean? So like, um, that is how I show up for myself, even if it's just an hour, but it's a very good hour and it's a sweaty hour. And then I automatically, immediately, right after class, feel open enough to take in other people's problems or the problems of the world and have and create a plan and an educated decision of how I'm going to curate my allyship or how I'm going to curate my way of supporting this movement. Therefore, um, with lots of yoga and meditation, I've decided to, with my classes that I offer, I offer pay as you, at what you can classes. Because if I myself want to be inclusive and loving of all beings, I need to, I need to offer classes that anyone can take, no matter where you're from. You know what I mean? And not many people do that, but there's no way that you're going to be able to show up for other people if you don't show up for yourself first. Oh, yes. As the kids say, that sounds like some king shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so you guys were talking a little bit earlier about about how you want to basically like your image to the rest of the world and how the rest of the world is perceiving you so that you can feel safe you know, that, so in your perfect world, what would it look like if you did not have to worry about that kind of thing? Like if you were able to shed all of the pretenses and put yourself into the world without having to worry about how certain people would look at you when you walk down the street, how does that look like? And how does that look in the context of our industry in the world of theater? That's a great question. Um, I immediately, the vision was being able to put on clothes and not have to worry about what does this say to a, a, a white woman on the street in Upper West Side or Upper East Side, not having to purposely elevate what's on my body or what I'm carrying as far as technology or anything for people to know that I'm serious. I'm not going to steal anything from the Apple store or I'm not going to steal anything from the mall. Um, that would be the perfect world. With the industry, I would love to, I would love to be able to not feel the pressure to be good at being Black or whatever black means to whoever the creatives are. You know, I, I, I don't need to feel, I don't want to feel pressure 
to be a shoe-in for Motown or the Black Ensemble of Hairspray or Ain't Too Proud or Lola and Kinky Boots. You know what I mean? Like that is, I, that is, that is a very powerful skill to have, but that is not, I don't think it's fair to think that every black person is just gonna pull that out. Like I believe Elena was talking um, a couple of days ago and we were sharing just our thoughts and she's like, I'm nobody's Effie. Like, but people look at, they look at you and they think, oh, she's gonna be perfect as Effie. But that's not the case. We have more of a, cause I've heard Elena sing, I believe that both of us have more of the contemporary musical theater sound. We're I came back from, after Hamilton, I came back to the, to the city and I told my agent, I was like, you know what, I want to play, I don't want to play Black characters. I want to play a character who just is in the story and I, I want to play characters who are not traditionally Black if there's going to be a revival, you know what I mean? And you'll hear this a lot when you guys interview more people. It, it starts from the leadership. It starts from the creatives being open to, you know, twisting it up a little bit. You, I mean, you don't have to have Black parents for you to have a Black son in the family that the show is about, you know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't need to be a big deal. It doesn't need to, you don't need to comment on it. Just if, if, they're, if they're right for the part and right for the story, then I think we should kind of like let that yeah. go or or write characters who are open to, who, who can be anything, you know what I mean? There, there just needs to be a lot more open hearts and open minds. Um, and hopefully because we're in this pandemic and Broadway is closed and a lot of theater is closed and this movement is happening, they have no time like now to be open and to change some policies and systems because what else are you doing? You're not trying to sell tickets because nothing's being sold right now. So you have nothing but time. Totally, totally. And I also think it's about the creative team that you're working with and who's actually writing these pieces because I was talking to our mutual friend, Corey, and I was asking him how he embraces it in a way that's so strong because what I love about Corey is he knows that he's being stereotyped but he also knows how to take that and not only shift your perspective on what that could be and all that he can be but he also embraces his type in a way that still gives the casting team satisfaction and I remember asking him one day I was like why are you so good at this like how are you able to take this thing that you didn't ask for and make it your own and make it so vibrant and eye-catching every time you perform and he said something along the lines of if we if we don't tell our black stories who's going to tell them if we if the black people don't tell their stories who's going to tell it for them you know and that really hit me because I was like I never looked at it as us actually telling our own stories I always looked at it as just fitting a caricature and I think it's all about like finding black playwrights I read a play I read a play a couple of weeks ago, Barbecue by Robert O'Hara, because Western's doing it. And I have never felt so understood as a human, as a performer, than reading that play. And it's because he's writing a story that involves black characters, but because he's black, he's not writing it from a, a point of stereotypes or caricatures. He's writing it from a place of authentic human interactions. And it's not about your race. It's about the story. And... I think a lot of the black playwrights I find, even if the story is supposed to be about a black character, it's not, it doesn't make you feel 
uncomfortable. It doesn't make you feel like you're playing to something that doesn't feel authentic because it's based in reality. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing for me. Like, I want to do those black roles. Yeah. I want to be in those black shows. But I just want it to be written and created by people who look like me, people who understand me. So I'm not sitting there trying to find a way to fit a mold that makes all the white people in the room comfortable because I'm kind of over making white people comfortable all the time. You know what I'm saying? It's all about just embracing myself. And and of course, I want to do the Kiss Me Kates. I want to do all the Sondheims in the world uh, just because the music is beautiful. But I also think we need to not only open this door for black performers, but open the door for black directors, black writers, because if you take a Shakespeare piece and give it to a black director, you will see how three-dimensional and how beautiful it could be, and you probably wouldn't have given it to him. The fact that we're not looking to black directors and black playwrights and black music directors to direct any kind of work, not just specifically black work, is also a problem and also something that I think would help make everything a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. This actually sounds like the perfect segue talking about, you know, working with other creatives and designers and everything like that and finding your place at the table. We actually have a cute little anonymous advice column and we have had somebody submit a letter asking for advice. Dear Fourth Wall, being a freelance director in a small town who directs at several community theaters, there are a lot of uphill battles I face. I am constantly trying to do and say the right thing and not upset the wrong person. Recently, a lot of racism has come up in the theater community in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, and a response to the movement from the theaters I direct at was not necessarily taken in good light. I spoke about their response, requesting what change they will make rather than just a Facebook or Instagram post, and got backlash from some of the theater's owners and artistic staff, telling me I didn't have the right to question them. My question is, how do I, as a white director, support my actors of color who are frustrated with these theaters while still respecting the theater owners and artistic staff, who in turn would, you know, give him employment and a voice. Um, I am seeing a lot of my friends, especially those who are currently in Broadway shows who are on a hiatus, they are speaking out against producers and the shows that they're in and the things that they've experienced, knowing very well that it is, there is a chance that they could be let go or it could be viewed in a negative light from the people they're talking about. Sometimes like your advocacy um, and your activism, it, it may, it is powerful when it costs you money. And I think if you feel very strongly about it, you gotta tell the world beautifully and expect that maybe you might lose your job, but you know why you're doing it. You know, you have a clear why, you have clear intention. And if you are truly an activist, I believe, and I might, who knows if I'm saying this correctly. Um, so take this with a grain of salt. The activism, it might be, you might have to sacrifice the job uh, for what you believe in. Knowing that 
if they let you go, then you don't want to be working for them anyway. I think people are, are there are there are people in high, high profile jobs in government and everywhere who are leaving positions because of the, the company they work for and what they support and what they do not support. And I know that's probably not the answer you want to hear, but I think you really have to think about how far you want to go as an activist. Um, because you are showing activism, you are showing action, you might have to push it a little bit further. Um, for them to say that you do not have the right to question, I think you do. Um, and hopefully they, hopefully they just need a little bit of grace and some time. Um, and I'm sure you have been mindful about how you approach them. But at the end of the day, man, if they're not if they're not supporting your views and they're and you don't want your name attached to it, because everyone's being called out right now and people's jobs are all on the line and people's companies are all on the line, depending on their their views and who they support and who they don't support. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And some of it is unfortunate, but you know what? Why not? Why not start your own start your own thing that is inclusive and Prove a point. Tyler, we have talked so long, and I know that you are the kind of person that we will just keep talking until your very next meeting and you will jump right into the next one without giving yourself time to breathe. I know, yes. just talking. <laughs> so, really quick before we head out, let people know where they can find you, where we can find some socials, where we can take your classes, give everybody some information on how they can get in contact with you. Yeah, um, all my information, I post about all my classes and all that stuff on Instagram. Um, Tyler McKenzie, if you just search for me, I should pop up. Um, you'll find information about my classes through my studio. Um, you'll find information about my classes in other companies, such as No Marking, Act One LA, which is on obviously Western time. Um, I'm always teaching, I'm always doing something and all that stuff is on IG. Um, and this was so awesome, guys. I'm so excited to see the, the development of this. Uh, you guys should be very, very proud of yourselves. So delicious. It's like, I just wanna keep, I, I wanna keep eating the conversation. It's just so good. And you guys have so many more. So uh, congratulations, guys. Nice work. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Tyler, go on. Go brew a, brew up a nice mug of tea. Oh, have I a sandwich know. or something. You know, maybe some fruit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Have a, have a delicious snack. Thank you so, so much, Tyler, for being here. It means so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for working with us to create this amazing platform. Of course. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in today at Fourth Wall, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at this is fourth wall, and you can send any questions, reflections, feedback, concerns, thoughts on your own experiences to hello at fourthwallpod.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>